Hello everybody and welcome to What's the Story podcast, WTS 291. My name is Danny Murray. And I am Graham Mero Merigano. Indeed you are, Merigano. How are you, my friend? Good, how are you? Yeah, doing great, man. Doing great. We said it last week, but it still reigns true. God bless these bright nights. The mood lifting energy that I'm getting from just the many hours a day like we have. I, I was never one of those people that understood the whole seasonal uh, happiness slash sadness thing, but Jesus, me mood is through the roof. Stop, man. I have, I do, I, as I got older, I had that terrible. Like, yeah. I remember about four years ago, like, dreading the winter. Yeah, and yeah. Just kind of, I literally, about four or five years ago, I was nearly counting down the days to daylight saving, like, Oh man, it's it's unreal. I I don't know what it is. Just these last couple of weeks, I've really noticed it. Where like I'm in the evening or whatever, and I'm finishing up, and I'm sitting there and I'm like, they're still yeah, I'm still yeah. going to get the dogs out. I'll get loads done. I can pot it. This gonna be great. I'm loving it. I'm yeah, yeah. No, brilliant. So I'm, I'm loving life. Um, Mero, any like the, we we have a brilliant guest this week. He's been on the podcast lots of times. He's our favorite historian, the social historian. Donald Fallon, and we'll get to Donald in a couple of minutes. Um, what's going on in your world, man? Um, Rovers are top of the league. They are, yeah. And besides that, um, what's going on? What else is going on in my world? Not much. Not much. Oi. That's the only but, reference you get to Rovers on top of the league now for the rest of the season. I hope you understand that. I let it everything else out. Yeah, cool. Um, um what well, what about yourself? Yeah, no, cool, man. Good. Just to be honest with you, I've no preamble planned. All right, <laughs> I thought you were getting me catching me out here or something. No, no, I just, I didn't, I didn't think of that in the preamble. So I said, I'm just going to ask Graham how he is and we'll go from there. But yeah. Yeah, no, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like it's, I feel like of a busy kind of June coming up or whatever, the concerts yeah. and I'm going to see the Arctic Monkeys in Marley. Um, I feel like there's, there's family there's, events and stuff coming up and. Yeah, June, June is a busy, June generally is a busy month, I find, because it's. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, I'm saying, I'm. I tell you what I am looking forward to though. I've two two big dinners coming up, Graham. I'm looking forward to. We love talking about kind of food occasions on this, right? Yes. I am going to the Michelin Star Campania in Kilkenny. Very good. Is it you and the lovely Oksana? It is me and the lovely Oksana. It is indeed. And you and I are both fans of this place, but six by Nico, the chipper menu. I, did I, you book it? I booked it. Booked when, it. When are you going? The the bank holiday Monday of June. Unreal. So yeah. since January, me and my friend, one of my best friends, Donna, um, we said that we were going to treat ourselves uh, once a month at like something just like a big restaurant or whatever. So we went to Six by Nico twice, three times maybe. Yeah. Uh, no, sorry. We went to the toy restaurant. We went to Vida in Cabantili. Oh, own, but I, it's one of the things I miss most about the Burra. Christian oh, and the team in, I call it Veda. I'm not sure if it's Veda. Veda, you're know. right, you're right, you're right. Veda. Christian and the team in there, the food is just, chef, sen- I'm doing a chef kiss emoji. sensational. But we also went to their establishment, the toy restaurant across the road in Cabadili Village. I haven't had it yet. Is it good? Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's ah. it's really good. The curry now tastes exactly like you're in India. Or sorry, t- Thailand. Well, if you're in Thailand, you're getting Indian. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong restaurant. But which, which curry did you go for? Which Indian curry did you go for? A Thai red. Oh, man. Thai red. Then we went to Six by Nico twice. We had the Imagination yeah. menu and... What was the other one we had done? Tokyo. You went to Tokyo. Tokyo. Oh, the Tokyo menu yeah. was out of this world. We went to Big Mike's as well in Black Rock and we had steak and a, a kind of fish platter. Yeah. And now we're booked into the Michelin star Grover's Alley. Oh, Grover's Alley. I'm dying to get in there. Paul Howard has been banging on about this for months and I'm dying yeah. to get in there. We're going there on the 27th of May and my next door neighbour uh, is a chef in in that kitchen as well? Very good. Up the yeah. border. Up the border, Connor. Um, and we're booked in for six by Nico's. What's the next one after the chipper? 
Uh, open the clouds, I think, is it? Open the clouds. We're booked in for that. The start is yeah. right. So we're missing something in June. So, but yeah, sorry. The point was we're, we are spoiling ourselves once a month and we're going to do, do it, it for, the, for the year. I, I encourage do you know what's mad with Six by Nico, Danny? Like mm. I would share the photos in my extended family WhatsApp group and they'd think that, oh, it, you know, my dad and my uncle would be like, that sure, that wouldn't fill you. That wouldn't fill you. I am bloated by the end of Six by Nico. I, I am. I'm stuffed. I'm fucked. Yeah, I'm <laughs> stuffed. Some of the desserts in Six by Nico have been the best desserts I've ever tasted. Oh my word, stop. Yeah. The we went to the New York menu um with with the lovely Martin Karen Brock. And then we done the uh the Tokyo menu and now we'll be doing the chipper menu as well. Um the Marrakesh menu looked lovely, but I, I just can't make it work to get to it before it ends. But yeah, lads, I'm telling this right. So I do us a favor, lads. If there's somewhere you love going for food, just Hit us up and let us know at yeah. WTS Pod on Twitter or at Andrew Murray on Instagram at Merrick. They're not pub grub because we're we're beyond pub grub we, at this stage. Yeah, like what Merrick was saying there. Up. No, but like what you said is right though. Just it's that kind of thing of like once a month or once every so often. Just you know what we're gonna go somewhere for the treat. That kind of thing. Like let us know where you go where it's like you know a little bit of an occasion. Or you're just gonna treat yourself. Give us the best places to go eat some grub, lads, because uh, that's that's what I'm doing these days to treat myself. So I want, I, want, I want recommendations. We do. So now our favourite social historian is back. And as we've always said, if we could have this fella on once a month, we could. But he's so busy writing books, doing walking tours, hosting Mick Lynch. Um, our favourite St. Patrick's Athletic fan, Donald Fallon. Thanks again for joining us on what seems like four or five times a year. I hope you don't mind. No, it's great to be back. A cultural surpassed athletic fan. I have to go back to the games. I, I tried to go recently and was told you can't just show up in the night and buy a ticket anymore. So the League of Ireland seems to be having a a, a moment of hipster fashion. Beyond Finsborough. Yeah, it's gone too yeah. popular for you now, Donald. <laughs> well, isn't it great to see? You know, there's a you have to stick to Hill 16. Have the, the alliance with Rascals Brewery and their nice own brand coffee. And yeah, we might call it the my good friend won't mind the, the Lambertification of the League of Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> is there a Shamrock Rovers craft beer yet, or is it on the way? Um, I think there is one. I think um, the the pub near your old apartment. Yes. Oh, there is a Shamrock Rovers craft beer. The Four yeah. Provinces. Yeah, the Four Provinces. I think did one. Uh, and it's love. I've actually had it, and it's it's named after that great piece of Shamrock Rovers history. The the White Horse that they would march right. with from Ring's End to the yeah. to the Cup Finals. Yeah, yeah. What a brilliant little nod. Yeah. That's, that's a great story, there. isn't it? Yeah, it's great. And as Kimmage has become slowly gentrified, this little bastion of Shamrock Rovers fans and the four yeah. provinces is brilliant. You know, like, <laughs> like when Rovers got to the final in 2019 and, and they walked with the horse um, from Rings End, the white horse, you know, the way, like, they, they wouldn't have done that since, I can't remember, maybe the 30s or 40s, maybe. Yeah. Like, don't quote me on that. But how, how, as a historian, do you like those reenactments? Yeah, they're little like commemorative rituals. You know, like for example, when when Tipperary are in the All Ireland final, uh, they always go to Talbot Street, where Sean Tracy was killed in a shootout. Famous kind of Tipperary War of Independence guy. He's one of the people who began the War of Independence at Solihead Beg and Tip, and then he dies in a shootout during the War of Independence on the, the streets of Dublin. And there's a plaque at the site where where he was killed, and they go there on the morning of the All Ireland final that they're in. Uh, and they sing this ballad, the song of Sean Tracy, and then they all make their way up to Kroger together. Wow, that is good, isn't it? Isn't it? And then they tend to always go to uh, the palace after, which is a big temporary pub. So they're like rituals. They're things that people's fathers did before them and grandfathers did before them. I think they're really nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's, it's cool, isn't it? The the uh, mm. Those pictures with the the, the, the white horse in, in Ring's End that year. Yeah, it's really it's yeah. nice to see yeah. survive brought back. Yeah, that's it. I remember um the, when they were uh, it was the the Pride of Rings End supporters club in Rings End um and the, I'm pretty sure their logo has the white horse in it um but yeah all those things are great come here um met you before Christmas your book was coming out um I was in Dubray Books trying to sabotage the top five. And you were top two. I kept, I spent the morning Christmas Eve as I do every year going into Grafton Street. And I went in, I went to the Dubray books two or three times. Um, because I met you then in Grafton Street to sign my books, which thank you so much. Very generous of you. Um, the success of that book was outstanding. I mean, you were number two Christmas. 
Yeah, it was amazing. And I, I think Bono bet me, but that's okay. Uh, Bono bet you, exactly. I later got a payday off Bono, which we'll get into later on. So I, don't <laughs> I called them a box in Dubray books and they just laughed. Well, you know, it was, it, I think on some level, the thing had registered with people uh, during the lockdown when they couldn't really do anything. And they would go on walks down the streets of their 2km or 5km and listen to this podcast. So I think the right thing to do was to write a book about streets mm. and walking down streets because that tied into that kind of lockdown appeal of pod. But yeah, it was mad because afterwards people were telling me like, oh, I've been walking around Watling Street. I've been walking around James Joyce Street reading the book. And I was like, God, I hope no one gets mugged out reading the book. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I don't send anyone down a, a dark, dingy laneway with this book in hand. But yeah, I think the thing that was in last year was place. So you had like, you know, Manicom McGann, amazing guy. Mm, yeah. He, that book. Uh, he, he wrote two beautiful books, but listen to the land speak, which was all about like the Irish uh, landscape and the mountains and all of that and language. And you had, uh, there's another beautiful book, An Irish Atlantic Rainforest, uh, that came out too, about a guy who's moved from Dublin into rural Ireland, and he's trying to, like, you know, bring back uh, old traditions and stuff. So people were really into place, being out and about nature, uh, rural Ireland, even urban streets. And it just, it was a moment, it was a moment for books like that last year. It was great. It's it's brilliant, though. And, like, it's, uh, if anyone hasn't picked up a copy yet, do. It's, it's a brain read. Three Castles Born and A History of Dublin in 12 Streets. Uh, but even just, like, from the get-go, like, it was funny, because the, the, the first chapter was uh, Henrietta Place, I think, isn't it? It's, yeah, Henrietta Street. Henrietta Street, sorry, yeah, yeah. Great street. Really cool and street. The, the history of the tenements alone, just that little, because, yeah. like, all I remember from school and tenements, Sean O'Casey and, and, you know, that kind of thing. So then reading this, and I'm kind of like, I've driven by and walked by those places hundreds if not thousands of times yeah and the stuff doesn't but then when you read this suddenly you're going next time I'm walking boy it just resonates a little bit more it just you know it brings yeah and I, I remember one of the first things I wrote in the Henrietta Street chapter was that uh, people know that street whether they realise it or not because it's always used in things yeah but they always use it as London because it's like two perfect terraces of Georgian houses staring yeah, at each yeah. other and then there's a cul-de-sac at the end where the King's Inns is. So it's yeah. perfect. And there's, there's always filming on that street pretending to be London. So it's in lots and lots of things. But you know when they film in Dublin for like Penny Dreadful uh, or what's the other big one that was done here? But they're always looking for they're always looking for a London that doesn't exist anymore, you know? And the closest yeah, thing yeah. they can find to it is Henrietta Street. And sometimes you'd see like a, a red post box on the street, you know, a prop or yeah. a, a fake street sign, a fake London street sign. So how could this street be so famous on the big screen and the small screen as somewhere else? That was the beginning of that chapter. And what does it actually mean in the story of, of Dublin? But it's it, like, it, it, it's brilliant because even so, like, there's just so many little nods even to like things that when I was a kid, you know, now looking back, it registers and like, but even just stuff like the story about Moore Street and Pierce Street and all these places that we've all yeah, yeah. seen, we've all walked down, do you know what I mean? But then... You forget and, about I mean, years and then you read this and it's amazing. The people of Dublin have kind of christened the book, you know, History of Dublin and 12 Streets, but where the fuck is Capel Street? Because everyone's really angry at <laughs> Capel Street. Which really? is a mad street. But Capel Street is so vast that every time I tried to write about Capel Street, I just got lost. And I was like, yeah. I never felt it was covering all of it. But yeah, Capel Street's an amazing street. And you know the way they've pedestrianised it, but that hasn't really worked yet. Yeah, yeah. So it feels a bit like... The Tour de France when you go down there, there's just bikes flying past. <laughs> like pedestrianization doesn't mean you replace cars with electric bikes. <laughs> yeah. it, means, it means you you have to reimagine everything. You have to uh, like you know what kind of street furniture goes in. Uh I was thinking about you actually, Graham, recently, because you see they're they're working on the square in Temple Bar now. Yeah. Yes. And people are giving out saying, Oh, it's too boring and it's too flat, but there were steps there before. So now it's yeah. more accessible. Now it's become more accessible. Yeah, the problem is, is with that though, Donald. I, I'm I'm two ways about that. I was quite annoyed. Uh, like there was a who who of a who's who of kind of the social elite in 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 Dublin and Ireland, kind of giving out two yards about that on Twitter, and they weren't really considering um accessibility in yeah. their in their resentment to the actual architecture architectural plans. Um, so I I I get annoyed at that part. Because I remember me and you had the discussion as well, Donald, a couple of years ago about 
Was it beside Grogan's? They, oh, they, yeah, Castle Market, where they removed the kind of nice, tiling, the nice yeah. tiling in the ground. But as you pointed out, like, you know, what is nice 1980s tiling compared to accessibility? Exactly. But so, so I do get annoyed at that. But then in, in the same breath, Dublin City Council, uh, Dunleary Ratdown County Council, they, they like, th there's people in there that are paid to do a job and they don't seem to comprehend that aesthetics and accessibility can go together like yeah exactly yeah. Which is really like that, point. that that temple that temple bar new thing i personally think looks awful and their excuse will be oh it's accessible so you're kind of going don't be blaming us yeah you know what the accessibility to be linked with ugliness so like exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and they, put, they, they deliberately put a, a a model of a guy in a wheelchair in the fucking in the plan as well, like, do you know what I mean? Well, I was talking to a friend about Cable Street for saying, you know, what? why hasn't this worked? I'm saying, like, what if, what could you put in the middle of the road on Cable Street that would stop, uh, you know, people treating it like a, like a, like a bicycle race? But I suppose the other question is then, how do you keep the road accessible? You know, how do you keep accessible people in wheelchairs, people with cramps? Mm. But for whatever reason, Cable Street, just my feeling is so far that it hasn't really worked. That doesn't mean it won't work. That doesn't you know, mean it's a gra yeah, gradual yeah. process. Like when they when they pedestrianized Grafton Street, people were furious. There's no way this will work. So it takes a long time. There was 10 years yeah. of people moaning about Grafton Street being pedestrianized before it was accepted. You know, like in, in, in Dublin, in kind of like um residential kind of Dublin, like Liberties and, and, and stuff like that. As there the the meeting points of old in those kind of areas for the the locals, are, are they gone now? Like, uh, I mean, yeah, well, like, I mean, you yeah. go to Italy or you go to Germany or you go like you've been you were recently in Berlin and you made a point of saying about art, art spaces. But yeah, did we ever have them like in the first place? Well, I mean, one of the, one of the problems with communal space in Dublin is developers will often promise things that they don't deliver on. So, you know, the Tivoli Theatre, yeah. which was leveled for uh, Space City, that. which is kind of a it's not even a hotel. It's like an apart hotel. Yeah. It's like a low frills ho hotel motel vibe thing, but they were talking about Tivoli Square. They said, "Oh, it's going to be a a communal space uh, within this development." But then it became a gated development quickly. People said, "Well, what happened to the to the promised square?" So, yeah, I mean, we're very bad, I think, at, at enforcing things here and public space. There has to be some. Something given the public space in any any big. Were we ever good at it though? Like the liberties, yeah. the liberties has lost a lot of character, you know, and it's mm. I, I I can see I'm in black pits now, and I can kind of see Cork Street, the cranes on the horizon, and around uh, where Teeling's Distillery is up there, Newmarket Square, and they've just they've lost an awful lot. There's very few places you can sit down anymore. Right, is that and not spend is, money, and that's something that has to change. Is that something that is just people talk it down to you know? the evolution of a city and society, or is it just a case of people plan and they don't plan for anything <laughs> other than the now? Like Everyone's now obsessed with like the 15-minute city, you know, this idea that you yes, would have yeah. everything within 15 minutes of your doorstep. But actually, most people in Dublin don't have a playground within 15 minutes of the doorstep. Yeah. Unbelievable. You know, like the the very basic things that you need. And 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 sometimes what happens in, in town, I notice, is space is kind of commandeered. So I I don't think it was a bad idea, by the way, during the lockdown, when there were real restrictions on pubs, that Temple Bar Square was kind of given over to pubs and restaurants. Yeah. So that just became outdoor seating for bars and restaurants. But they were up against like restrictions in terms of how they could operate. But then it wasn't taken back. <laughs> so when pubs and restaurants reopened as normal, Temple Bar Square was still just seating for tourist pubs and restaurants. So we have to get better at kind of enforcing things and saying, you know, you know what? You were given that space for a certain time for a certain reason, and now we're taking it back. And uh, there's a new development you've probably you've probably seen it between kind of Mulligan's Pub, Pub Egg Street, and say Pierce Garda Station. You know where the cinema used to be. Yeah, mm. Screen Cinema, Mister Screen, rest in peace. He's hiding yeah. up now in there. Uh, <laughs> he's in the cinema on O'Connell Street. He's up there <laughs> in, the, in the foyer of the Savoy. <laughs> but there there seems to be a, a walkway there between. Pilbeg Street and, and Pierce Street. Mm. And a guy, Connor Doyle, great guy, he's campaigning to have that named after the Theatre Royal, which is at that spot. And he wants a kind of Hollywood style thing where you'd have like stars with the names of people who are in the Theatre oh, Royal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very it's good. a great idea. 
and if there's good seating there and, and everything else, that could really work. But yeah, I mean, developers often promise public pathways and public squares and public space and then don't deliver on it. And we just have to get better at enforcing. You said you would do this, you know, where where yeah. is it? Berlin's a great example where you've got a very strong city council. And Berlin was a dumping ground for a long time, you know, for kind of odd people as far as the Germans were concerned. The mayor had a great line. He said, in the 90s, poor but sexy. You know, <laughs> it was like, send us your odd, your, your arty children and they shall flourish in Berlin. But the, the city council was always quite left-wing, I think because of that kind of nature of the city. And yeah. public space is really good. You, you walk down the street and there'd be, you know, those kind of... Uh, Table tennis tables, steel table tennis tables, or there'll be a place for bowls, or there'll be a playground. Uh, Actually, you're never. We don't, we don't have any of that, do we? You're never more than like two streets from a playground there. And uh, we've a little bit of it. Sometimes you find things like in the middle of town, you know, Ormond Square, where Johnny Giles is from. Yeah. It's a minute from the Liffey, literally a minute from the Liffey. And you've got a beautiful playground in the centre of that. So we do get it right sometimes, but it's just about ensuring, I suppose, that when you're, when you're, building in a city that you're also providing for people who live in it. A, a, an attempt of a bit of a clunky segue here. <laughs> One of those great public spaces that we do have is the Phoenix Park. Oh, isn't it brilliant? Isn't it brilliant? You're, speaking of success of uh, the, the History Golden 12 Streets, your next book and project centres around that magnificent public space yeah, that is the Phoenix a- Park. Nice segue, and it's a, it's a strange uh, it's a strange because the last book's about twelve streets, and this book is kind of about one road, which is <laughs> Chesterfield Avenue. You know, it runs yeah. right through to Phoenix Park. It brings you from what they call City Gate, Park Gate Street, uh, all the way to Castle Lock, and that road just feels powerful. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, when, yeah. And there's, by the way, people may have noticed this: there's no parking allowed on Chesterfield Avenue anymore, so that's changed the feeling of it totally. Mm. And you're driving up it. Got Wellington on the left, too. Big, like, fuck off, Wellington testimonial. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Mm. The largest obelisk in like the Western world. <laughs> You've got Arsenukteron on the right. You really feel like you're in this amazing place. But you'll notice if you go into the Phoenix Park at, at a certain time, there's this beautiful glow that you don't get anywhere else in the city because it's not electricity. It's, they're still gas lamps. And I discovered, really? I discovered that one family have done that since 1890. Amazing. The granddad did it. The dad did it. They do it. One of them, Frank Flanagan, he's 92 years of age and he's still involved in the Phoenix Park gas lamps. So, and did you only recently find this out, Donald? So, so uh, the Irish Times had this little thing that went viral during one of the lockdowns where they went out and they followed the lads as they did the lamps. It just blew up. And the publisher saw that clip and they went, I wonder if there's more to this. You know, is there, is there a big story in this? So when I sat down and spoke to them, I went out to their house. They live on Black Horse Avenue. It's, it's kind of funny. Like they actually live beside the park. And you can see into the park from upstairs in their house. So their whole life revolves around. Like the first thing Frank sees when he wakes up in the morning and looks out the window is the Phoenix Park. His dad, his granny worked in the park. His granny was in the park in 1882 on the day of the Phoenix Park murders. Wow. Or I should say the Phoenix Park assassinations. Yeah. <laughs> Two members of the um you know, the 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 British administration were walking up Chesterfield Avenue and they were like attacked by the Fenians as they went. And there's a tiny little cross I learned on Chesterfield Avenue where, where that happened. But Frank's granny was working in the park that day and told them about the madness and you know the police and the horses galloping around the place. Uh, they have great stories. They've met every president since the first one, since Douglas Hyde. Uh, they're talking about Mary McAleese. She used to go around every lodge, lodging house in the Phoenix Park. You know, every gate has a house. Yeah. And then there's other people who live. There's loads of people live in the park, actually. It's surprising when people live in the park. And she would go around to all the houses and meet them all and really felt part of a community. So these lads have stories about everything from the Phoenix Park murders to the Pope's visit uh, to hanging out with Mary McAleese. Just mad. Brilliant. That's yeah. mad that the, the lights are still gas. Yeah, and I mean... I, like nothing stopped the gas lights until the war in Ukraine. So gas is something, you know, that the price of gas has gone through the roof since yeah. since the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, a lot of cities who use, very few cities actually use a lot of gas. So so Berlin uses a lot of it, actually. And if you look at an aerial picture of Berlin, you can see the different lights. Matt, like if you, if you Google Berlin from space at night, you can actually see 
the difference between where they use gas and where they use electricity. Buckingham Palace in London, they use some of it. Uh, Prague uses a bit, but it's really uncommon. Anywhere that uses it kind of uses it as a kind of touristy thing, mm. with the exception of Berlin and uh, and the Phoenix Park. So it's, yeah, I mean, I don't think they'll be there forever. Yeah. Frank would be shouting at me if you heard me say that. Like, But I think in time, they'll probably uh, give way. So what, they, what they've done in Berlin is they've, I could see it when I was there, they've replaced gas lamps with LED lights, but they're not those really bright you know, you know the really bright LED yeah, yeah. of LED lights. These that look like gas. They actually look like gas. Yeah, they have the same kind of glow orangey glow or whatever. Yeah. So they're they're kind of you're able to fake a gas lamp there. Yeah. How many how many um, residents are there in the Phoenix Park? Oh, loads. I mean, there's um, people like former park keepers who've retired and they're like a guy called um, uh, John. Oh, we got his book here. It's a beautiful book. He wrote a book on history of the park. Uh, former park chief superintendent uh, John McCullum, and he was the guy. He got the job in the eighties, and he really tried to fix the park because there are all kinds of problems by then. I mean, people were it had basically become a big road, you know, mm. for people who lived in the new suburbs. So you go at the western gate, and you've got you know, like massive suburbia, Blanche and all that. And McCullum was like, actually, we need to think about this place. Is it a road people drive through, or is it a recreational park? And he really tried to make the park a. a a beautiful kind of Victorian park again. He lives in it. He's retired now, and he yeah. still lives in the park. So there's loads of people knocking around in there. Uh, and, and was it a case of... like was it like you know Guinness, where if you work for them, you got this kind of house nearby? Was it was that the case? Some people did, yeah. So like park chief superintendent and stuff, there were like nice little perks of the job. But it's mad. Like you're talking to someone who, when you look out your window in the morning, you might see traffic. When he looks at his window in the morning, he might see like deer, you know, just yeah. walking across the park. And even learning about, the, like, I interviewed a guy who works in the park now, and Paul was telling me how they do a lot of work with UCD uh, because UCD uh, are doing a lot of research into deer. You know, the people who work with kind of wildlife, mm. and they're trying to stop tourists going up there and feeding. It's really, really dangerous, by the way, to walk up to there. This is something I've noticed a lot more and maybe it was a lockdown thing I don't know but the amount of people on social media posting going up and feed like because the deer are so used to people that they'll just feed them, them by hand yeah, them by hand. yeah. and they they get very freaked out by too close contact with people and there's certain times of the year as well uh, you know where they've other things on their mind yeah <laughs> like marijuana and, Saturday uh, night yeah yeah, yeah. The, the last thing horny deer want is a Spanish language student you know, with, a, with, a, with a carrot and that. So the yeah, you have to be careful on a Saturday night. You, you have to be All careful. Right, <laughs> you got to be careful around these deer. But even learning that stuff was marked, you know, about you know how they how they how they deal with them, and then people's memories of the park in COVID times. Yeah, because it was a great it was a great cheat sheet for everyone. You know, you weren't allowed to go more than two kilometers from your house. But if you lived in Chapel Lizard. Or if you lived even in Stony Batter or whatever, or when it became 5km, Palmstown, where my parents were, it was within your 5km. But once you got into it, the massive world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you you weren't as, no, like once you were in the park, no one was checking where in the park you were. It's, but it, so it like, became a big part of people's mental health and sanity during, during the lockdown. Time, yeah. yeah, absolutely. The, the park, though, it's like, I mean, I think some people almost take it for granted in terms of like, you know, oh, the zoo was there. And that's quite yeah, yeah, yeah. almost where the relationship ends. But like, like as you said, the history of it and the people who have, you know, gone along Chesterfield Avenue, visited Aris and Oogter the people like it, it is a who's who of history that yeah, has I, gone in and out of that park. So and who's who's in the park? Like right now, as we're speaking, at, you mm -hmm. know, eight o'clock, who's in the park? There's, it's bright out. So there's probably, you know, Indian and Pakistani lads playing cricket. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is a big deal in the park. And, you know, where garrison game is soccer their garrison game is cricket and they're up there mm -hmm. playing it uh you'd you know in a few hours the lads would be around checking the lamps uh you have a lot of life in the park you've you know you have a lot of guards the guard headquarters is yeah. there or sanukderon is there uh the 40 glen like it's it's a place people go for sex it's a cruising park in a big way and it's always been like that I mean, the lads had stories about their granddad in the early 20th century finding fellas in the park doing these things and then discovering in the paper that these guys were done for buggery and sentenced to prison. No it's always way. been a place where those things go on. And uh, Even with the Garda HQ there? Yeah, and James, one of the brothers, had a great story. He said, when you, when you, he goes, when you'd see a couple walking up Chesterfield Avenue, you know, he'd have the Mac under his arm to lay on the grass and you'd watch where they went and you'd go down after they were done because there'd always be coins in the grass. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's, that's the sex tax, you know, in the Phoenix Park. The coins that you leave in the ground. But yeah, it's mad. And it, it, it rem- actually, Tiergarten Park in Berlin, right beside the Brandenburg Gate, uh, it's the same. You know, there's kids there in playgrounds, there's fellas in the bushes riding, there's all those things that happen in a park in any urban environment. But it's mad. I found out that Roger Casement actually went up to the Phoenix Park looking for fun. Really? And Take Her Up the Monto, you know, the great song, yeah, Take Her Up yeah. the Monto. Uh, Bookshop Foster, the Dirty Owl Imposter. He took a mutton loster in the Furry Glen. <laughs> they went up to the park for the same reason. So it's a mad place. There's so much going on in the park on any given. People have been murdered in the park, not just the Phoenix Park assassinations, but. No, know, there's been. Wasn't there one? Killings, uh, wasn't a few Arthur. years ago. Um, a, a terrible case of a homeless man being, being set on fire in a tent or something. Yeah. yeah People you know. sleep in it. I mean, the lads yeah. had another story about when there's bad weather. You'd sometimes come into the park and you'd see all the tents hanging in the trees because people dried them out. Yeah. So for some people, the Phoenix Park is the pinnacle of their life. You know, you're Uktarov, you're the president of Ireland. And for other people, it's the lowest point of their life. And where yeah. where did it where did it come from? Uh, where did you read that about Roger Heisman? Oh, I was um I was tipped off to Roger's diaries. <laughs> and uh yeah, this is a, this is a PG show, so we're not gonna read the diaries out. <laughs> <laughs> is Roger there actually Roger's, Roger's diaries? Roger diaries are kind of half motivated by his desire to free Ireland and half motivated by his desire to have sex. <laughs> it's right. And both of these things, uh, yeah, took up a lot of his, 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 his time and his thinking. But it was amazing to think that things like that go back that far. People, you know, in some ways haven't changed all that much. Yeah, and even soccer, you know, like Bohemians are born in the Phoenix Park. Pats, Dermot yeah. Looney wrote that lovely book on Pats, Saints Rising. Uh, I didn't know Pats played their earliest seasons in the Phoenix Park. It's, it's the place of so many things in Dublin yeah. and so many good things, a few bad things. But it's, yeah, it's a mad place. Are, are, um, are, is, are Roger Casement's stories being published? Well, they have been published a few times over the years and there's lots of debate over, you know, whether they were forged. I don't they weren't forged. I think mm-hmm. when they got to court, I think they were definitely amended in places and... and you know, potentially exaggerated, but a lot of it is what it is. Mm. That's kind of accepted now. And Casement's, yeah, that was the life he lived, and it's all there on paper. You know, but, what did yeah. what did one of your heroes think of the Phoenix Park, Brendan Behan? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, well, you see, Behan, uh, his uncle Patrick Kearney wrote many of the great kind of nationalist songs of the day, mm. and that event, the Phoenix Park murders, has always really divided nationalist opinion, you know, if it, if, it, if it should have happened or not. 1882, Cavendish and Burke. Cavendish is on the first day in the job. First day in the job in Dublin. And as they're walking up Chesterfield Avenue, he's with a guy called Thomas Burke. He's the permanent undersecretary, so he's like a permanent British official in, in Dublin. But Cavendish is brand new. Like He doesn't know anyone. He's brand new. And as they're walking up Chesterfield Avenue, the Invincibles, as they're called, lay, lay, lay uh, attack. And that's the line in the, the song, you know, motto. It wasn't very sensible to tell on the Invincibles. They stand up for their principles day and night. And it's just a mad moment. It's just a mad moment. These murders that shock the empire and, and nearly toppled Parnell's career. I just found it amazing to, to look at that because the fact that Frank's granny was there that day and there's a cross in the ground. You know the, you know the area at, at Chesterfield Avenue where there's a break in the trees and you can see into Arsene Neutron? Yeah. Yeah. Just across the street. A famous picture of the, the president of the dogs, that, that one. Yeah, yeah. Just across the road on the other side. Uh, but almost in line with that break is the little cross where the, the Phoenix Park murders happened. Wow. So the fact that Frank's granny had seen that, and he had stories as a kid about, you know, the ghost stories. He used to talk about how the kids claim that they see Burke and Cavendish walking up the road at night and stuff. Which is amazing, isn't it? And if look, if the Phoenix Park isn't haunted, nowhere in Dublin is haunted because it's a, it's a mad <laughs> place. The energy, the energy of the park at night is really strange. And then you've all these villages around it, which are so different, you know. So yeah. Chapel is is a map like Chapel is. It feels like you're in rural Ireland, doesn't it? When you live in Chapel is it? It's like yeah. Really... But what what some of the architecture in Chapel is looks like rural Ireland or yeah, yeah. And you've Sheridan Lathanu, the great ghostwriter. He. Uh, there's a house there, the house near the churchyard, where he set one of his big ghost stories, and it's a very eerie place. Chapel is a very kind of you, if there's a there's a, a lot of ghost stories around it anyway. Then you compare it where the lads are. Black Horse Avenue kind of nearly feels like you're in rural Ireland as well, up at a hole yeah. in the wall. 
what make what 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 do you what do you mean about the the mood or the area in Phoenix Park? What like what is it? I just like when you're walking through the park, you're like the magazine fort. You know that's the Easter Rising began there. That the plan was to to raid the magazine fort and to blow it up, and they did raid it. Uh, they did manage to blow it up. But as you're walking through the park, there's just so many things where you know people's lives were transformed or people's lives were taken, and even like one thing I didn't write about in the book actually was was a. Uh, Malcolm MacArthur, you know, the, the killing of the nurse in the park. And that's where that, you know, saying Gubu was a grotesque, unprecedented, bizarre, unbelievable. It was like a murder that shocked the country. But yeah, like a lot has happened there, you know, and a lot of people, the fact that you're in a place where people have gone in desperation, you know, where they're, like suicides in the park has been an issue too, yeah. through the ages, homeless people in the park. Uh, yeah, it's just a place which has a very strange air about it. Well, it's mad. When you when yeah. you say it like that and and the amount of history that's taken place in it, like a like, million people went there to hear the Pope, you know, which is that's mad. Crazy. Million people, and you know, David McWilliams, who I know you've you've had in the pod, he talks about the Pope's children, yes. the people who were there in the seventies. He went on to change the course of Ireland's economic future, but it's it's just mad to me that people went there in a, in a crowd of a million and felt that they were part of this great moment. Other people have have gone there at the lowest point of their lives, and it's just mental, isn't it? And 110,000 people went there to watch the Red Hot Chili Peppers one year as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I seen the Stone Roses there the first Me comeback. Me too, yeah. Gig. Yeah, and Red Hot Chili Peppers and the, and the Pixies, lest we forget. That's, That's right. very true, yeah. Amazing opening set. But all the big parks of London, you know, the your, re, your Regent's Park and all the other ones, Phoenix Park is bigger than the five big London parks combined. Like it's massive. Combined? Yeah, it's massive. Wow. Absolutely massive. So, um, so when these is going up and down Chesterfield Avenue doing the gas lamps, they're kind of just the the in. They're the in to the bigger story of of park. When when will the book hopefully be on shelves? Don't hopefully know. September. And uh, my brother Luke, he took a lot of the pictures on a film camera. Oh, brilliant! So film, like in the Three Castles book, film was great because it can be a bit moody and you don't yeah you don't know what the picture's going to come back looking like till you see it. But when he was shooting, one of the lads, uh, James, was up doing the lamps and he was taking a picture and James said, is that a film camera? You don't see many of them anymore. And Luke said, you're, fi you're fixing the fucking Victorian gas lamp. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about old technology? Exactly. <laughs> old. Um, the pictures are great. And yeah, it's a moment hilarious. in time. It's a moment Absolutely. in time. because uh, I tell you, 20 years there'll be LED lights in the Phoenix Park and everywhere else too. Yeah. That's it. It's a, it's a changing world. Um, speaking of changing worlds, I sat down recently to watch Disney Plus and their show about Bono and the Edge and David Letterman. And I'm about 10, 15 minutes in and I go, Stone will fucking Fallon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The big Disney TV star now. Huh? Proof I can Ain't keep a secret. World. Proof I can keep a secret. Non-disclosure agreements. You know, uh, my love of getting paid beats my love of gossip. So I, I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell anyone about this. And uh, yeah, when it came out on telly, people were like, what the fuck? Is that you on telly with David Letterman? But he came over about a week and a half before Christmas. Mm. And you might remember there was a really foggy week. There was a week where it was, conditions were pretty bad, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't sure if they were going to do it, but I met them at the Project Arts Centre. And I only found out it was Letterman, I think, a day before. Oh, wow. And the people that they recruited to come on the tour had no clue. Like they stopped tourists at random in the street and they said, do you want to be in a documentary about you two? That's all they told them. So you end up with these Spanish and German American visitors who have no clue what they're getting into. And uh, some of them didn't know who Lerman was because they, were, they weren't from English speaking. Yeah, yeah. You know, or English was like their second language. So they wouldn't be watching like, clips of Lerman on YouTube or whatever. But uh, because it was so close to Christmas, that meant there were very few American tourists in the city. So very few people recognize Letterman. You're walking around town with someone who was simultaneously very, very famous. Yeah. But also kind of relatively able to blend in here, bar the like 12 cameras. <laughs> <laughs> and when you, when you do something on RTE, like there's, there's one camera and they do yeah. something from multiple angles, you know, to make it appear like there's lots of cameras. But when you do something with Disney Plus, there's just cameras everywhere. I've never seen a setup like it. It's just wow. unbelievable. So we brought, went to the project. That's where they played some of their earliest gigs. So we're still the hype. And crucially, yeah. that's where uh, Paul McGuinness seen the band. And Paul 
has a lovely line about you two. While the manager said that they were a band of four and a corporation of five, so <laughs> he knew his place in the story. But he's seen them there. Uh, totally fell for them. And we talked about where the name you two came from. Now that didn't make it in, but you thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, but, it's uh, odd because it's uh, it's, it's it's kind of a, a big part. Of... Yeah, Steve Rapid from the Radiators in Space, who were great yes. punk band. He was a graphic designer, and he said, "Look, the name, the hype." It doesn't really suit it's a bit punk. You're not a punk band. You're like a post-punk band. And at the time, you had lots of great band names. So in in XS, INXS, uh, UB40. You know, there was a kind of trend. There was a certain kind of post-punk name, which was like letters, numbers, or just three or four yeah. letters. X XTC. That was one that you two loved. XTC. So he wanted something like that, and he settled on U2. Simple. And for a graphic designer, it's a dream. It's like you can you can write you two so easily and it looks brilliant. Any font. Yeah. If you look at you two album covers over the years, yeah. it's so iconic. Yeah. One number, one letter, side by side, perfect. So that didn't make it in. The stuff that makes it in is funny and the stuff that doesn't. But I suppose Are you a fan of you two, Donald? Uh, I like the very early stuff. Yeah. I think uh, you know, it's like the, the singles like out of control and stuff. They really were a post punk band. Yeah. And they're fast. And you can tell that a lot, of, a lot of the Dublin scene in the seventies, what they were listening to wasn't English stuff. They were really into American stuff. So the big influence was the Ramones. Yes, actually, yeah. the, the very early days of U two, the hype, their sets have like maybe two Ramones covers in every gig, and people were listening to like Iggy Pop and the Stooges and stuff. So the sound is different mm. from what was happening in England. Except the Clash, they love the Clash. I was chuffed that bit made it in. Yeah. That, uh, Bono and, and and The Edge, they were at that gig when U2 performed in, in Trinity College. Uh, and that really made them think about, God, we could do that. You know, we could you must that. have been chuffed to be asked, though, Donald, were you? It was cool, yeah. It was great because, yeah, the 70s and the 80s, like, people don't like to think of that as history because they remember it. <laughs> you, know? So, <laughs> you know, I noticed that there's young kids now, you know, we all have nostalgia for Italian 90. Yeah. yeah. Which we were around for barely in some cases. Like, I was like one. Uh, or, you know, nine months or something like Italian 90 takes this very romantic place for our generation and little chow and all of that but now I see kids who were born in like 2001 2002 and they're wearing like the World Cup 98 mascot <laughs> the yeah. little guy from France yeah, so yeah. for me that's weird because I remember watching that World Cup as a child and yeah. it's a bit of that with the 70s and the 80s a lot of people say oh that's not history I was at that gig that's not history like, well, it is history whether you like it or not you know the 1970s and the 80s is part of the historic story of Dublin Temple Bar we were talking about Temple Bar earlier. Temple Bar emerges in this kind of countercultural thing in 1970s Dublin. So, yeah, people don't like to admit that that stuff is history because it makes them feel old. But the story of U2 is, a, is now a historical story. They could only have come out of Dublin at that time, yeah. Temple Bar at that time. Even some of the early, just early songs that touch on things like addiction, drugs, you know, when heroin was a big problem in the north of the city and the northern suburbs. So they're, they're a product of Sunday Bloody Sundays. They're a better example than that of a... Yeah. A song that captures a moment in history. So I liked the idea of taking something that everyone in Ireland knows, you two, and reminding people that, yes, it's a, it's a powerhouse band today, but it's also a historic story. Yeah. And Bono's book was really good. You know, people didn't want really? it to be good, but it was, it was good. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I read it. Oh, yeah. I think I, I said it on, on this podcast there a while back. I I, uh, I got a gift for a thing on Audible, and I decided I'll give the audiobook a go. And yeah. I couldn't believe, like as far as audiobooks go, it's one of the best of it because the production oh, yeah. value in it. And in the way it describes the, the clash gig and stuff, it's great. Yeah, you exactly. know, where, where it kind the of drifts a bit, where it starts to, to lose me at times, there's a lot of God in it. And he's, he's there so is quite a bit of God in it. Yeah, but he is and quite kind of They're kind of a Christian rock band, but they don't begin as a Christian rock band. They begin as a kind mm -hmm. of post punk band. But by the middle of the next decade, there's a lot of God there. And a, a lot of the songs, I think, between the lines are kind of about God. Yeah, well, even even in the early days when you know around the October album in the early 80s when they had that yeah. kind of internal battle because was it I think Edge and Bono were members of this Christian yeah, I don't yeah. use the word cult but you know well I didn't know that yeah yeah, yeah, and it, it yeah. Really split the band very up very strange then, you know but um, you're, you're right and like the, the the tourist industry that's being built around it, they come to see these landmarks people do. They like there's a weird thing of people who flock to see 
you know, stuff down around yeah. for John Rogerson's key and Hanover key with a shield. Funny you say that. That's, that's the thing that didn't get in where yeah. I was standing at the Project Arts Centre at the very, very beginning and I said to the group, 10 or 12 times a day, uh, tour groups stop exactly where we're standing now and they point over there at the Clarence Hotel and they tell the same lie and there's this fake story that apparently you two once entered a battle of the bands in the Clarence Hotel and they didn't win and there was a row with the bouncers and the bouncers said, you have to leave now. And as they were leaving, they shouted back, we're going to own this place someday. <laughs> and that story, isn't it? That story's told all the time and it's nonsense. The, the Clarence yeah. Hotel was not that kind of place at that time. No, you know, it was no. a place where, uh, you know, priests and nuns and the like drank cups of Irish coffee waiting for the next bus. Like it wasn't a particularly exciting hotel bar. Yeah. Uh, but it's a myth that's just entered the law of the city. And I was saying, like, actually, the building behind us, this big, freaky blue building, the Project Art Centre, this is actually where it all began. Yeah. You know, so there they're is still a... still the parents? I don't know. I think, I think they're still in it in some capacity, yeah, in, in, so. in on it in some capacity. But uh, the it's amazing. Are and I told often enough, you know, and there's, every city has foundation lies. You know, so you go on a tour in New York and they talk about how there's alligators uh, in the sewers, which of course there yeah. isn't. People believe it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, London has all these mad conspiracy theories about, you know, World War Two. There's a few of them, but you know, they they talk about these abandoned tube stations that were sealed up. There's a handful of them, but in the mind of a Londoner, there's like dozens of them. People yeah, tell you all the yeah. time. So for Dublin, that U two met is one of the big ones. You know, Donald. Um, before we were, yeah, sorry, Dan, we're running out. Of, we are running out of exactly, time. Yeah. I just wanted to see, uh, um, you um hosted Mick Lynch at a. At a festival there recently, what 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 was Mick like? Uh, Cork what City an amazing man! man. I mean, the thing, like everyone, I loved watching Mick uh, during the the RMT dispute in England. It was it was amazing watching him on Sky News, wasn't it? Yeah, going it was through going through K Burley like a, a knife through hot butter. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. K Burley did this thing that I've never seen a newsreader do before. She would actually roll her face. <laughs> <laughs> Like, is, I love that. I love when he's on the picket line again. I love when he's talking and he's answering questions and he he, he shows an air of disdain to the question, yeah. um, but he still articulates it so well. Um, and by all accounts, he's a Cork City fan as well. So yes, and he's serious about Cork, and he he uh, he's his family are, are Cork and are mad. But you know, he's been a massive Republic of Ireland away fan, going right back. He was in Suckard in '88. Well, but it, we ended up in a very interesting discussion about what it means to be Irish in Britain, you know, because he said when he goes to the Ireland away games and he goes to loads of them, in fact, he's going to an upcoming Ireland away game uh, with his son. He said, when you go to an Ireland away game, there's fellas from Manchester, Liverpool, Glasgow, lots of Glasgow people. Uh, but when you go to an Ireland game at home in Lansdowne, you sometimes get this like you're a plastic paddy thing. And he's like, actually, his Irishness is as so important to him. It's as important to him as this kind of English identity. And uh, it's just mad, isn't it? That like we we love when there's someone on the news who's got an Irish connection. Yeah. yeah. If we like them, so, you know, Ronald Reagan came here in the seventies. Ronald Reagan was very Irish by blood, but we were like, no, we don't like you. When Christie has that great one there, uh, you were wearing the green then in Ballyporeen. You know, hey, Ronnie Reagan, I'm black and I'm bacon. Like when 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 Reagan came to Ireland, people didn't want to know about, him, even though he had strong Irish blood. But Mick Lynch, who has very strong Irish blood, we love him. So every every radio station in the country, every everyone wanted to chat to Mick Lynch about, about his Irishness. And I find that Irish identity in Britain, it's a it's a very beautiful thing, you know, in, in London, in Manchester, Liverpool. It produced the Pokes, it produced the Beatles, it yeah. produced the Smiths. It's a real part of, of being Irish. Oasis. It's Oasis. The, the Oasis. Very that's a great example. And you know when when I love the clip of Oasis on the Late Late Show in the nineties, and they're like, "We've just done a gig. We don't really want to be here, but our mother would kill us if we didn't come on the Late Late Show." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the Irish in Britain, that meant so much. So, yeah, Mick's identity was an interesting thing to talk about. But look at him giving a speech. He doesn't shout. He doesn't get into this like juvenile language that the other side are, are the enemy. It's very reasonable, and I think they they him and Eddie Dempsey and the people around them, they really represented their workers in a kind of calm, dignified way. And when they're on the picket lines, by the way, Mick and Eddie weren't paid. You know, the RMT officials on strike days weren't paid, mm. which I thought was a very important principled position that uh, 
you know, people are suffering to be on the picket line. The head of the union should be in the same position. And they, they threw everything at him. Papers, yes. Everything they could throw at him. That he but he's, a, he's, a, new, he's a nice man, though, is he? Yeah. He's a lovely man. And, and, and his wife, too. They're just really nice, grounded people. And there's a lesson in that, isn't there? I suppose that when you when you go out, as they went out, the RMT, and you're willing to be in it for the long run, and you're willing to play the media game right. One thing that is... He went on podcasts like yours. He went, you know, joe.co.uk. Yeah. Now, joe began as an Irish thing, didn't it? It was joe.ie. Yeah, they they yeah. They've got an English section there. And joe.co.uk did a thing where they went down the pub with Eddie and Mick. Uh, they drank a few pints with this young broadcaster and they talked about the dispute. They talked about their lives. And he was able to bring it down to the level of whatever it was. If it was a show aimed at 19-year-olds or if it was... You know, GB News, which is like this like right-wing news channel in Britain now. It's like a a breakaway. Uh, it's kind of like Pierce Morgan and all these kind of yeah, people. Yeah. They're pretty undesirable people as far as I presume Mick is concerned. But it was still a platform. It was a different audience. He had to go on there and win them as well. He went everywhere. There was no section of the media that he wasn't willing to have the battle of ideas in. And yeah. that's what it's all about. You don't just speak to the people who agree with you. You have to Absolutely. speak to them. I think there's, there's a little bit too much of that, I think, in, in the modern world, in the modern media, where it's, I'm only going to talk to this side because they'll tell the story yeah, 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 I yeah, want yeah. to yeah. tell, you know. And whose fault is that? Some, some, in some ways, that's like tech's fault, because recently I just became kind of obsessed with uh, Andrew Tate. I think he's hilarious. I think he's oh, just a, a fool. He's just a total fool, you know. I was watching his videos and it's like, you know, come to Dubai and you can be me. And it's just mad shit. But once you watch one or two Andrew Tate, videos <laughs> suddenly your youtube feed is just all these yeah it's toxic as well isn't nasty it? kind of lifestyle misogynist type so the when you watch something once or twice you're suddenly bombarded with that content which is a real which is a real pity in the, in the yeah. world we're in today but mick went across the trenches a few times and even like some of the papers like the daily mail just went for them all the time yeah, but he'd still talk to them. I mean, he was able to laugh. <laughs> know, he had yeah. a great, he had a great line where he said, "Anyone from any newspapers here, and if there's not, I'll take a question from the Daily Mail." And everyone yeah. laughed, including the Daily Mail. But he'd still <laughs> engage with them, and I think that was that was part of his success. The algorithm stuff is fascinating, isn't it? And yeah, it's kind of yeah. right. It, it's been fascinating to you for years, hasn't it, Donald? You, yeah, you yeah. I've always been conscious of it, and yeah, people that make like you guys, anyone that makes content is always thinking about it. who's seeing my stuff or who's not seeing my stuff and why are they seeing it or, or not seeing it. But when you go down a rabbit hole like that, when you when you, when you find something, I don't know why. I I, I think I, I watched this guy Andrew Tate on Pierce Morgan. I actually never heard of him before, and then I realized he was a fighter and he had this whole backstory. And yeah, I just thought he was so comically mad and just just nuts that I just I kind of hate. It's what's the term they use? I hate watched some of the stuff. And then I was getting loads of it. Doomsday uh, scrolling as well. It is. Doomsday scrolling. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. So, yeah, it's like, you know, when YouTube decides what you want to watch next. Exactly. Come here. You mentioned Dave McWilliams there. Before, and, and this is definitely the end because you have to go. I am um, go for a while. You're, you're, you're booked for the Docky Book Festival this summer. Yeah, the Docky Book Festival. Mad thing, isn't it? And uh, they asked me to do a live pod out there. So originally it was John Banville until John Banville learned that he cannot be in two places at once. So he double booked <laughs> himself. He double booked himself in opposite provinces, never mind counties. So they were like, who else do you want? And I kind of said, oh, I don't know now. I said, oh, not feeling it. Maybe we'll just come back next year and we'll do Banville. And they said, well, if you could have anyone, who would you have? And I said, well, if you can get me Roddy Doyle to do it. And they got Roddy. So Roddy's oh, the Yeah, Roddy's the man, you know. I didn't know that because I did see the I did see the advertising for John Banville. Yeah, yeah, and it's ended up being Roddy in the end. So uh, I think that'll be very special. And that's yeah, on the sixteenth. That's on the seventeenth. The sixteenth of Bloomsday. Uh, yeah, the anniversary of Ulysses. So yeah. this will be the first Bloomsday where I don't get absolutely rat ass drunk because I've been good nigger. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's what Joyce would want, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but is there a, it's a big anniversary this year? Is it for Bloomsday? No, we had it. We had a. We had it there. It was twenty twenty two last year. It was the hundred anniversary. So, yeah. so yeah. geez, that was the anniversary, and then Bean was a hundred, like a hundred. Yeah, well. Bean was February, and we're we're doing a thing actually in the literature festival uh, next Friday. Uh, so yeah, just over a week with uh, or probably probably this week or whenever this goes out, twenty sixth with uh, Rady from Langham and Pat McCabe wrote The Butcher Boy and a few other people. Brilliant. Brilliant. So 
B, the B anniversary has been interesting because he's remembered as a series of like very funny one-liners, you know. Mm. Uh, I'm a drinker with a writing problem, fantastic lines. But actually, when you scratch below the surface, there's this amazing writer in two languages, fantastic Irish writer, fantastic English writer, uh, who writes brilliant stuff. Probably the best prison memoir of yeah. like the, the mid 20th century. Borstal Boy is amazing. Such a fantastic book. Uh, the Queer Fellow, great play. The family produces all this amazing stuff. I mean, the same family produced the national anthem, Aaron Naveen, his uncle. I, his brother writes Liverpool Lou, which is John Lennon's favorite song. And uh, Magic Black and Tans, Mental, which you may huh? remember went to number one in the iTunes chart in 2020, <laughs> a few weeks before we were all locked down. Remember, do you remember that right before lockdown? There yes. was the Black and Tan Gate. Yeah, that was the stake commemorating the RIC. Everyone was up in arms about it. It was mayhem. And uh, yeah, Dominic Behan's song, Commemorate Black and Tan. I think it was the Wolf Tones version. It went to number one on iTunes in Ireland and in Britain. So this Amazing. is the one family. The family of Aaron Levine also produce Comanche Black and Tans. Mental, isn't it? What a mad family from the I saw with, with the recent up to date, with the recent kind of uh, migrant crisis that we're dealing with and, and the growing uh, unease from people that are calling a, a small minority. Um, I did see tweets about there was... I suppose I'm not sure if there were tweets from historians, but it was definitely there were definitely from Behan fans saying, you know, it was basically saying this is how Behan would have handled those protests. Oh, back in the 30s, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah he, had a, he had an altercation with blue shirts on the streets, but that was, I mean, the stuff with the blue shirts was interesting because the, the blue shirts were they were kind of quasi-fascist. I mean, the leaders definitely knew mm. what they were doing, and even they, 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 you know, instead of the Zeke Heil and the Straight Arab Salute, they used to do Hocko Duffy. And they'd put their hand up and even wearing a shirt, you know, like the brown shirts and the black shirts, like the people who are directing the blue shirts knew what they were doing. They were trying to create an Irish fascist movement. The rank and file, I don't think were fascists at all. I think they were just like, you know, conservative farmers who were concerned that Dev was going to collectivize all their farms or something. But the, the IRA detested the blue shirts. Yeah. And I think one reason for it was they were basically the pro-treaty side, you know, people like O'Duffy and stuff. They were like the other side of the civil war. I think that was a big motivating factor for a lot of people. But then Behan, like he was Ray, his house in Crumlin was known as the Crumlin Kremlin. <laughs> his mother used to play a record of the Russian national anthem and she'd open the windows and sing at the top of her voice. What? So he actually grew up in a like very left-wing anti-fascist household. And the idea of this young kid from Crumlin, sorry, from Russell Street slash Crumlin attacking the blue shirts on the streets, it's very believable. I certainly believe it happened. Unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. He tried to go to Spain. You know, he could he could have ended up a, a verse in in Christie's song. Yeah, he turned him down. He was too. Yeah, Frank Ryan when when he showed up and met Frank Ryan. Apparently, he was with his friend Carl Goulding, and Frank said, "You're too young. Please, like you're too young." And he'd already been he'd been out in Spain. Frank, he got injured and he came back. And fair play to him actually going back out there because he knew they weren't going to win. Yeah. You know, and he seen people wiped out. Frank still went back and uh, was eventually captured. But he told Brendan and 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 Carl that they were too young. And there's a story. I don't know if it's true or not, but there's a story that apparently they wanted to cycle to Belfast because they heard there was a boat going out to Spain from Belfast, and they got a puncture on the way. Carl said that he got a puncture at like Balbriggan or something, and they turned and went home. So, yeah, Brendan could have been like Charlie Donnelly, you know, or, or yeah. Tommy Watt could have been a a sad name in, in that song. Cycling the Belfast, unbelievable commitment there. To go and fight in Spain. It's yeah, mad. mental. But he had a lovely line, Brendan, about the blue shirts. He said they were the only army in human history who ever came back with more men than the left us. Like they didn't see a whole lot of action. But the Irish guys, when you listen to that Christie song, like they were wiped out. Yeah. They were hammered. Some of the worst battles in the war, like Ebro and Harama, they were just like the fatality rates. It was a very dangerous place to be, Spain. Yeah. Does, that, does that brilliant line, even the olives were bleeding? Charlie yeah. Donnelly wrote that one, yeah. yeah. Poet. And uh, I really feel for him. He was a young poet from Tyrone. He'd gone to UCD. He didn't graduate, but he was getting very frustrated by the atmosphere in Dublin. And, uh, apparently, he, he left Dublin, went to his friend in London, 
Leslie Dakin knocked on his door one morning and Leslie said he arrived straight from the Houston train and before the milk. You know, he was at the door and when he said, why are you here? Charlie said, I just can't take that place anymore. That Dublin was heating up so much and the blue shirts were on the rise that he just had to leave. And yeah. it's such a romantic war, isn't it? Like, Yeah. Hemingway fights in it and it's just like it produced Orwell fights in it like it's a moment in time it's it's a war that every romantic idealistic young man and some women were drawn towards yeah. I'm glad glad Brendan wasn't at the Battle of Arama yeah <laughs> um, Donald as all we, we could spend hours and hours and hours talking to you um, but that wouldn't be fair to you but <laughs> then if people like us are raising that this episode is coming to an end they'll be delighted to know that there's many hours of you telling even better stories, if possible. Ah, well, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, as we finish this call, I'm editing the next one, which is about Paddock Ah, uh, there you go. The Look anthem. at that. I learned some mad stuff. He, he wrote the National Anthem in a cafe, the Swiss Cafe in O'Connell Street, which is what? mad. Yeah, he wrote the National Anthem in a cafe, which is crazy. Isn't it? <laughs> On O'Connell Street, which is so beautifully symbolic, you know, where, yeah. where the GPO is. So that's going up. I hope that goes up tomorrow. I'll go well, but... It's been, yeah, it's been very fun. Like you lads are at it a long time. You're, you're the original connoisseurs of Irish podcasting. You're right. Up there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eight, year old, eight years old next month, Donald. It must have been just like the Irish History Podcast. Was Blind Boy on the go? No. I think he I think he came about a year or two after. later. Yeah. Yeah. You must be like in the first like 10 or 15 Irish podcasts. I don't. I think Charlotte was definitely going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the, the Irish History Podcast was there. And to, I can't even remember. There was definitely one or two others, all right. But then it was like, sort of late 2016, 2017, there was like a, a the podcast, the pod blast, if you will, this bomb yeah, yeah, yeah. where suddenly, you know, and then over the years, it's brilliant. The, the amount of Irish content that is out there now and brilliant Irish content at that. So well, we need them. We need brilliant. them to to divide the charts in two, right? There needs to be That's one true. chart for any podcast that has Vogue Williams in it. Yeah. <laughs> there seems to be about about seven in the top fifty. I went through it one day. And it was like Vogue on her own, Vogue and her friend, Vogue and her fella, yeah. Vogue and her fella in another capacity. Yeah, Vogue and Joanne, Vogue and hogging yeah, the no charts. Ones. You know, she's hogging yeah. the charts. Well, this look, here's four the thing, five sold out nights at the tree arena. Yeah. Well, here, here's the thing, though, lads, they, and it's something that and. Mero, you and I are foolish for not tapping into it a lot quicker. The the female audience <laughs> isn't just true crime. People no. made this assumption that women only listen to true crime podcasts, and yet, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah it's an it's well, a you know the, the obsession with crimes, like so many series on, on murders. There won't oh. be a mass murder left in in world history by the time the podcast. This really time next year, you'll be telling us you're doing one on the Phoenix Park murders. Yeah, well, there's been one that's really good. The, the, there was that, one done, see, yeah, go. during what lockdown. Uh, I think it's called The Invincibles. It's, it's a good listen. Yeah. But yeah, be, you'll have people going out and committing murders so they can do podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> we don't condone it. We don't condone it. Um, I, might see you, I might see you at the Doggy Book Festival. Yeah, brilliant. Looking forward yeah. to that. And uh yeah, I know you've had McWilliams on a few times. He did your he did your like Woodstock moment, didn't he? That big one in, in the workman's back. <laughs> you don't want our <laughs> Woodstock, show. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like mad. Now we all have podcasts. The three guests now have all podcasts. Everyone claims they're at it. Who was it? Was it was PJ? It was PJ. No, 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 it was Joanne oh, McNally, John McNally, Dave McWilliams, yeah. and Ken. Now Ken was the OG of. Uh, yeah, actually, there you go. There's second captain. Second captains are gone. Imagine that. what you could command for that lineup today. Stop, Joanne. <laughs> Bloody gazillionaire now, I'd say. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, dude, again, that's, that's the Alamo. That's the GPO of Irish Broadcasting. That's, <laughs> <we're all again. laughs> that's what we call it now. It's been a pleasure. Definitely. All the best with the book and uh, right. continued success with Three Castles Born and easily the best history podcast out there. Um, but thank you so much, man. Appreciate your time. Thank you see, guys. Thanks, Donald. Brilliant. 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 It's the only way I can describe Donald Fallon and everything he's done with Three Castles Bornham. Um, a gent of a man and his ability to tell stories and remember facts and just make those social connections between a heathen city and an individual. It's just fantastic. But it's his recall as well, you know, it's and brilliant. it's like... So what Pajo always says that his his voice is so soothing and easy to listen to that imagine he was now my history teacher in school was the legendary PJ Carty. So a I great did, man. I did learn a lot. 
but imagine him being a, a, a teacher for you in school. Like oh, he's, I, like I, I studied history in college, and some of the, the the lecturers or whatever I had were brilliant and engaging and everything. But I can't help but feel Donald could easily inspire, in, like a a new generation of avid history fans and historians. Absolutely, absolutely. And he, but the, and, the thing is, he's he's bringing it to the masses though. That and yeah. that's the beauty of it, like. Yeah, and I hope he's I hope he's making something from it, um, from the pod, um, yeah. but. Uh, if anyone's listening, try and get down to the Docky Book Festival to see Donald in conversation with the great Roddy Doyle. That's Absolutely. on June, Saturday, June 17th. That will be unbelievable. Yeah. Now, I'm booked in to see Paul and Roddy Collins that afternoon, but I'm not sure that's, if it's a that, that That's a sin now, that is, that you've just gone first name only because you're name dropping. Oh, did I do that? You did. You went, I'm going to see Paul, as if everybody is on first name terms with... The great Paul, Paul Howard. Sorry. Um, yeah, pa- Paul and Roddy Collins would be brilliant. Me and Gary Mackle. I'm a drop of um, the pleasure of going to see uh, Paul Howard and Roddy Collins in the Sugar Club there That's when right. they were launching the Rod Father. And it was a brilliant night, a brilliant event. The stories being shared were fantastic. Great crack. Great sincerity in some of the stories as well. The Rod Father is an amazing book. Um, it's even, even Cubes picked it up after I finished it and she was like there's a lot of football in it but that's a love story it's not a football story and I was like the amount of people who've said that Cubes you've got a nail on the head yeah but I got I got that audiobook have you got the audiobook I didn't do the audiobook no <laughs> oh yeah I did sorry I did I did I just haven't I haven't listened to because I read the book and then yeah sorry yeah um, I I tried to get the audiobook of No Surrender on Audible and it was only given me, to me in French that's your sentence pal is it yeah, you'd want to check into that. Because I've ordered audiobooks. I I don't know, but I can tell I audible and it's it's not no surrender. It's surrender. Surrender. No surrender. No surrender is a Bruce Springsteen song. It's a brilliant song, by the way. Good. And okay. actually on his on his live show, great moment on his live show is actually we should talk to it last week when I talked about it. Uh they play No Surrender. It's like the second or third song on the set list. Little Steven, Stephen Van Zand playing with a guitar decked out in the Ukraine flag. Beautiful moment. Just very poignant, very fitting. Very anyway, sorry, that's an aside. Um, I have to tell you a funny uh, anecdote there. Um, my brother Carl didn't realise that Seal from The Sopranos was in the E Street Band. No way. Yeah. And he was on his Instagram and obviously some of his friends maybe were at Bruce Springsteen. He was like, what the fuck is Seal doing on the E Street <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Anyway, Dan, where can anyone listen to us? They can get us anywhere and everywhere you get a podcast. And same with, with Three Cover Born Podcast. But you can get it on Spotify. Uh, that's where most people are getting it these days. You can get it on Apple Podcasts. You can get it on Stitcher, Podbean, Podcast Addict, Podcast Republic. Literally anywhere and everywhere. Just search WTS Pod. And 290 episodes that precede this will be there waiting for you, along with me and Mero and a couple of short-lived 10 minute specials called the 600 um, there's bonus episodes in there as well you can get us on social media at WTS pod on Twitter he's at Merigamania on the Instagram I'm at Don Joe Murray on the Instagram it's been a pleasure lads thanks for listening and until next week there is four hearts and blue it's way right.